Okay, 11.30, y'all ready for some word? Yes? All right, I hope so. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. We are kicking off a brand new summer series today on the book of Psalms. And we're going to start where the book starts in chapter 1. So again, if you have a Bible, just go to Psalm 1 with me. Psalm chapter 1. The great reformer Martin Luther once called the book of Psalms a mini-Bible. And he referred to it as such because this book, which is a collection of poems and prayers from several different authors, it actually contains an overview of the grand narrative found within the scriptures. It's really important for you to know this, especially if you're new to church or new to the Bible. But even though there are many stories within the Bible, all those stories are part of one big story. And if you've never heard the story, it goes something like this, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that he took what was dark, formless, and void, he gave it shape, gave it light, filled it with beauty and life, took which was not uh, very good, made it very good, and then he created man in his own image. And he gave man the responsibility of ruling and reigning over the earth in such a way that all the earth would be forced to recognize the very kingdom and character of God. And man did okay for a little while, but uh, we get to Genesis chapter 3, three chapters into the Bible, and man rebels, right? They fail in their purpose. Instead of ruling and reigning under the authority of God, man decided he wanted to rule in place of God. And God had every right at that point to completely give up on mankind, but he did something very different. He actually decided to raise up a nation of people for himself, a nation called Israel, and he gave this nation the same purpose he gave the first people on earth, Adam and Eve. Uh, in Exodus 19, he actually tells Israel, you're going to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation set apart to me. And so the idea again was this, that this nation would rule and reign over the earth in such a way that every other nation would be forced to recognize the very kingdom and character of God. And so in the book of Exodus, we see God bringing that nation out of slavery in Egypt. God gives them the law at Mount Sinai through Moses so that they would know how to live as that kingdom of priests. He actually establishes the temple uh, or the tabernacle first, later would be the temple in the land that he would give them so that his very presence could come and dwell amongst his people. Fascinating. And as good as these people had it, guess what they did? Rebelled. The same thing as their parents, Adam and Eve, right? They worshiped idols. Uh, they adhered to the practices of foreign nations. They decided to walk in disobedience to the covenant God made with them. And so after sending for centuries prophets to his people to warn them to turn back, eventually the, the nation of Israel fell to foreign nations. Uh, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. The very presence and, and glory of God departed the law was somehow lost. How do you lose that? I have no idea, but it was lost. And this nation that was meant to rule and reign upon the earth, they are conquered and ruled over by foreign nations. And so what's so interesting is that the Old Testament ends in much the same way it begins, in chaos and in darkness. And again, God had every right at this point in history to give up on humanity, but he didn't. Instead, and I find this so incredible, the God of the universe decided to intervene personally. He took responsibility for the rebellion of mankind. God wrapped himself in flesh, and he came and lived among us in the person of Jesus Christ. 
And as a result of what he's done through his life, death, and resurrection, he is and will one day redeem and restore all things back to their original design. You see, that's the big story of the scriptures. And that's the story that's found all throughout the book of Psalms. You see, I need you to know the Psalms are not a result of a bunch of dudes sitting down and having a songwriting session, okay? No, the book of Psalms is a result of men recognizing and writing down in poetic form what God has been doing and will continue doing throughout redemptive history. Beautiful, beautiful book. Now, historically, this mini Bible, it was used by the nation of Israel as their hymn book when they gathered to worship God publicly. Uh, In fact, the Hebrew title for the book of Psalms is the book of praises. And so whenever they gathered like this, they weren't singing Hillsong or, you know, Passion or Elevation. For you people that grew up in church like me, they weren't breaking out the hymn books and singing hymns. And there are some awesome hymns in those hymn books, aren't there? Awesome, awesome. But look, they were singing the Psalms. And these Psalms that they sang, they still serve the same purpose for us today as they did for the people of God all those years ago. A couple purposes, and if you're taking notes, you might want to scribble this down. Uh, Number one. The Psalms help us to see God for who he is. Like this beautiful poetic book helps us to see that God is holy, that he is sovereign, he's majestic, transcendent, high and above all things, but at the same time, he's close, he's near, he's imminent, he's a God who's gracious, merciful, compassionate, kind, long-suffering, abounding in steadfast love. And so I would say to you, if you ever start to forget what God is like, Uh, The book of Psalms is a great book for you to spend some time in. But secondly, the book of Psalms also gives us human language that helps us to express our emotion and our devotion to God. You see, what I love about the Psalms is that it's full of all these different feelings and emotions and experiences. Some of them are positive, some are negative. Uh, Some are very hopeful, some seem very hopeless. And you'll see what I mean as we plow through several of these Psalms in the next several weeks. Uh, But the beauty of this book for people like us today is this. It means that when you and I have a hard time finding words to express ourselves to God, we can open the book of Psalms and let it help. There are 150 Psalms to choose from. I promise you, regardless of what you're going through, you can find one that leaves you thinking, okay, that's where I am today. That's how I'm feeling right now. That's where my heart is And so you can let this book guide you as you express yourself to the Lord. Now, the reason we're going to start in Psalm 1 today, it has more to do than than with the fact that this is just the first psalm in the book. Uh, We're starting here because Psalm 1 basically serves as an introduction for the rest of the book. Anybody in the room like to read books? Okay, like three. Okay, a lot more. I was worried at first. I was about to, like, y'all need to read more, okay? But... Uh, I read all the time, love to read. If you're anything like me, maybe you're guilty of skipping the introduction to books. Like my logic is this. Hey, uh, I can find out what I need to know from the rest of the book. Why do I need to waste time reading the introduction, right? But, but hear me, this is an introduction that we simply cannot afford to skip. All throughout the book of Psalms, you find two major themes being repeated. Themes of blessing and themes of judgment. So in Psalm chapter 1, here's what the psalmist does. He lays out two ways of life for us, one that leads to blessing and one that leads to judgment. And so this chapter that we're getting into today, it's basically an invitation for you and I to practice what many of the other Psalms proclaim and prescribe concerning the blessing and judgment of God. And 
And if you're confused by that or wondering, James, what do you mean? Uh, I think it'll all make sense as we tackle this together today, all right? So if your Bibles are there, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, this will be on the screens. So let's read together. Here's what it says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Now, we'll stop there and talk. In these first three verses, we find the psalmist laying out the first way of life. And I want your help. Tell me what he's talking about. He's laying out the way of life that leads to, that leads to blessing. That leads to blessing. And by the way, this is not a reference here to external blessings. And it's really important that you hear me say that because there are theological camps out there that teach that. That to be blessed by God means that you live in a big house and you drive expensive cars and you have a designer wardrobe and you're rolling around on private jets. By the way, did you guys hear about that televangelist recently who asked people to pay $54 million for him to get a new private jet? Did you hear about this? Would you just look at me real quick? Don't ever give guys like that your money. Like ever, okay? Because men like that are perpetuating a very dangerous theology known as prosperity theology that says if you live a certain way and obey God, then God will bless you with external riches. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches instead this, that being blessed by God means that the God of the universe gives you an internal joy an internal peace, an internal contentment that is not produced nor affected by external things. And what the psalmist is telling us here is that there's actually a way of life that leads to God blessing someone in those ways. And, and I want to describe for you what he says. He outlines the way of life for us, and, and he does so first making some negative statements. Here they are. He says, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, who doesn't walk in the counsel of of the wicked. Uh, the point is this. He's saying that the blessed person is the person who refuses to base his life on the ungodly advice of ungodly people. And that is a good word for us today because we're living in a culture right now where there are plenty of ungodly people giving lots of ungodly advice, right? I mean, all you got to do is turn on the TV or listen to the radio, read the latest magazine, and you see it. You'll find people who could care less about God screaming at you, just do what you want. Life's about you, so, so live how you want. Like follow your heart, obey your conscience, indulge all your desires, and if you do, you'll be happy. And can I be really honest with you? If you take their advice, you might be happy for a season. I mean, I've said it before and I'll say it again. If you say sin isn't fun, you're either lying or you're doing it wrong, right? That's the first time some of y'all said amen in a message I've preached. But, but you guys know, look, sin is fun, isn't it? For a season. But the problem of sin is that it's fun always runs out. And this is what ungodly people fail to tell you. They promise you that if you'll just do what you want and live life your way, that you'll know lasting joy and contentment. But that's not true. The truth is this, and, and some of you know this from your own experiences, that only God can give you lasting joy and contentment. And that's what the psalmist wants us to see. Number two, he says that blessed is the man who doesn't stand in the way of sinners. Doesn't stand in the way of sinners. Now, standing in the way of sinners is different than standing alongside sinners. 
There's a really important distinction here, and, and I want you to hear me say this. It's so critical that you get this, all right? The reality is, if you know Jesus Christ today, you have been called by God as one of his people to pursue sinful people in love for the sake of helping them find their way back to him. You see, Christianity is not a call for the people of God to hide out in the safety of church buildings away from the big bad world. No, the mission of Christianity is this, befriend sinful people without befriending their sin. And contrary to what our culture preaches and promotes today, I need you to know, it is entirely possible to do that very thing. And do you know how I know it's possible? Because of Jesus. I mean, have you ever read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Jesus was accused, get this, of being a friend of sinners. Why? Because he was. I mean, if you read the Gospels, you find Jesus hanging out with sinful people all the time, yet Jesus never practiced or even approved of their sin, right? He didn't show up on the scene and, and, and love and befriend sinful people only then to say, ah, do what you want. God's fine with whatever choices you make in life. No, no, instead, Jesus engaged sinful people that he might, in love, call them away from their sin and to a new and different way of life, a way of life that ultimately leads to God's blessing. And so, again, when the psalmist talks here about not standing in the way of sinners, this is not a warning against proximity. It's a warning against persuasion. It's not a warning against contact. It's a warning against camaraderie. He's simply teaching that if we want to live that way of life that leads to blessing, we cannot allow ourselves to be persuaded by the lifestyles of sinful people. So in other, way, in other words, their way can never become our way. And then finally, he says, blessed is the man who doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. Do you see the progression here? Doesn't walk, doesn't stand, doesn't sit. Uh, the idea is that if you walk in the wrong advice, listen to the wrong people, you're going to stand with the wrong people, and eventually you're going to sit down with the wrong crowd. That's the progression, right? Don't sit in the seat of scoffers. So what's a scoffer? It's someone who mocks God. But they don't only mock God, they mock all that's associated with God. His people, his word, his commands, his way of life. And oftentimes people who mock God in this way, they consider themselves to be very intelligent, very informed but in fact, according to the Bible, those people are fools. I mean, you see this all throughout the book of Proverbs. I'd encourage you to read the Proverbs. A lot of wisdom in there for your life. Uh, but the book of Proverbs says that people who mock God, that they're the people who despise wisdom and hate knowledge. They don't receive rebuke or correction. They love to stir up strife and controversy by insulting others. They actually take joy and pleasure in making a mockery of God and his people. And why do they do this? Because they're prideful, and the only thing they care about is themselves. Have you ever been around someone like this? Some of y'all shot your hands up real quick, all right? If that person's with you today, don't elbow them or look at them. Just stay up here, all right? But, but listen, here's how you can know if you're that blessed person. According to the psalmist, you're that blessed person if when you find yourself around these people, you're going, ah, I want to be here. Like it's depressing being around them. I can't even take joy being in their company. Why? Because they make a mockery of the one I love the most. Now, after making these negative statements, the psalmist then goes on to make a positive statement about blessed people. And, and look at what he says. I love this. He says, blessed is the man who delights in and meditates on the law of the Lord. 
Now, if you come from a church background like I do, I know oftentimes when you see that word law in the Bible, uh, it's easy to just let your mind go back to the first five books of the Bible, the book of Moses, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the law, right? Uh, Or your mind goes back to the 613 laws that God gave Moses in the Mosaic Covenant for the nation of Israel. But I need you to know today, as we read Psalm 1, uh, we need to take the law as meaning more than either of those things. You see, this word law here simply means teaching or instruction that comes from God. And 1130, answer me this. Where is teaching or instruction that comes from God found? Yeah, it's found in the Bible, in the scriptures. And, And so when you and I, as New Testament believers, read Psalm 1 today, we need to hear the psalmist saying that blessed is the man who delights in the entirety of God's word. He takes pleasure in it. He finds joy in it. He's satisfied by what God has said. In one of the commentaries I read this past week, the commentator put it beautifully. Look at this. He says, what does it mean to delight in the word of God? Well, here's a man who's in love with a woman. He delights in her. He yearns to spend time with her, and when he's with her, he drinks in every word she speaks. He's intoxicated with her beauty, so it is with the godly person and the word of God. Isn't that awesome? But look, according to the psalmist, uh, the blessed person doesn't only delight in the word of God, he meditates on the word of God. Now, that word meditate doesn't mean what some of you think of when you think of meditation, okay? Uh, This is not a picture of a person sitting down Indian style in some, like, hot room somewhere you know, taking deep breaths and repeating ohms over and over again. That's not it. Uh, the word meditate in Psalm 1 in the Hebrew simply means to mutter or to murmur. And so here's a picture of a person who is reflecting upon the word of God by speaking the word to him or herself in a low voice or even internally that he or she might live out the word of God in their daily activities. And again, according to the psalmist, that's something that a blessed person does day and night. They do it around the clock. And so the idea is this. Meditating upon the word of God is not something that you set aside special time to do each day. This is the, not the psalmist trying to guilt you into doing a quiet time. Get out of bed at 5 in the morning. And you read your, Look, that's important. But do you know what's more important? The word of God being on your heart and your mind and your lips all the time so that as you live each day, you live in accordance with what God has said. Here's the promise. The person who lives like that, (laughs) I love this imagery. The psalmist says, he's like a tree planted by streams of water. This comparison here is very similar to a comparison that the prophet Jeremiah makes in Jeremiah 17. Here's what he says. He says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He's like a tree. Here it is. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when he comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Now, based on this passage and the passage we're in today, Psalm 1, think about that tree with me, if you will, that tree planted by streams of water. What is true of that tree? It's strong, it's stable, it's productive. Even when storms come, that tree is immovable. It doesn't break or bend under the pressure of the storm. Even when seasons of drought set in, that tree does not wither and die. Why? Because it is full of life that comes from the water. And so that tree is unshakable in the sense that it continues to bear fruit that offers refreshment to people who eat from it. 
The psalmist is saying that people who delight in and meditate on the word of God are like that tree. They're firmly rooted. They're always prospering, always flourishing. Their lives bear spiritual fruit that offer refreshment and help to those in need. But not only is that true, listen, when the storms of life come their way, they're immovable. When dry seasons set in, they are unshakable. Why? Because they are standing firmly upon the word of God. And when you keep reading the psalm, and this is so unfortunate, the psalmist goes on to say next that the exact opposite is true for people who adhere to the second way of life. Look at verse 4 with me. He goes on, the wicked are not so, he says. So the wicked aren't like that tree. They're not firmly rooted. They're not planted deeply. Uh, they're not full of life and, and beauty. They're not immovable, unshakable. They're just not like that. But they're like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so he's describing here for us this second way of life, which is the way of life that leads to judgment. And he describes this way of life by comparing wicked people to chaff. Okay, the imagery here is of farming practices that were taking place back in this day. Uh, when a farmer would go out into his fields and he would harvest wheat, he would bring the wheat into what was known as a threshing floor. And he would throw the wheat onto the floor and he would have his oxen walk around on the wheat to separate the grain from its husks. Those were the chaff. Okay, he would then take a winnowing fork. This was a lot like a pitchfork. And he would toss the grain and the chaff into the air. And because the grain was heavy, it would fall back to the floor while the chaff would be blown away in the wind. And so the psalmist is saying, look, that wicked people who despise the word of God are like that chaff. This, again, is similar to a comparison Jeremiah makes. And I want to take you back here because I believe this imagery is important. He says this, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Here's his comparison. He's like a shrub in the desert. Well, that sounds like a terrible existence, doesn't it? Just hanging out in the desert heat all day. Uh, he shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. That sounds like misery, right? And so what is the point of these comparisons? I mean, what's the psalmist saying? What is Jeremiah saying? Well, the psalmist makes the point very clear in what he says in verses 5 and 6. And, and here's what he's teaching. He's reminding us that there is a day of separation coming. A day on which the wheat will be separated from the chaff, the trees from the desert shrubs. So in other words, on that future day of separation, God himself will remove wicked people that he doesn't know from righteous people that he knows. Last Sunday, we talked about the importance and, and the, uh, the blessing of knowing God in a very intimate and personal way. If you weren't here, I would encourage you to go watch that message. Uh, I pray it encourages you. But do you know the only thing greater than knowing God? The only thing greater than knowing God is being known by God. I don't know if this amazes you like it does me, but, but to think that right now the God of the universe knows James Griffin by name. Like he knows me. I'm a son in his family. Uh, the Bible says that he knows every hair on my head by number. And the same is true for you. And listen, even if you don't have hair, like he knew it by number when it was there, okay? 
The, the point is this. The point is God knows you intimately. God knows you personally. And being known by God in that way means that God loves you. He's committed to you. He's watching over you, caring for you. And that on that future day of judgment, God himself will offer you protection through Jesus Christ, his son. Isn't that amazing? So God knows you, but, but here's the unfortunate truth. There is no protection for the wicked. See, we're reminded by the scriptures that on that day of separation, those who despise God in this life will be despised by him. Uh, those who chose to live apart from God and his people in this life will continue living apart from them in eternity. And as John the Baptist says in Matthew three twelve, as he's talking about Jesus Christ himself on that future day of separation... Uh, the chaff will be burned up with unquenchable fire, and the wicked will experience for all eternity the judgment of God. Why? Why? Because they rejected the truth of God's word. And again, remember the big story of God's word? It is all about what God is doing through Jesus Christ to redeem and restore all things. And so when I say they reject the word of God, I'm saying that they rejected the truth about the person and saving work of Jesus Christ. Hear me, rejecting the word always leads to judgment. Rejecting the word always leads to judgment. Here's the big idea of today's message, and this is what the psalmist is trying to get us to see. He wants us to see that the way of blessing is the way of the word. That the way of blessing is the way of the word. So in other words, if you want to experience that inward joy, that inward satisfaction and contentment that comes from God and him alone, if you want your life to resemble that tree planted by streams of water, like I want that to be me, I, I want to be firmly rooted, immovable, unshakable, regardless of what's happening on the outside of me. If you want to have the hope of knowing that on that future day of judgment, you will enjoy the protection of God given to you by Jesus Christ. Listen, the word of God has to inform and influence every aspect of who you are. First and foremost, you have to believe what this book teaches about Jesus. That he's God, Savior, Lord, and King. That, that by his death and resurrection and ascension to heaven, that he and he alone can save you out of sin, death, and hell forever and bring you into the eternal kingdom of family of God. But look, after you believe in Jesus, then you got to keep going back to this book, this word over and over again, to find the counsel you need on how to live as a follower of Jesus. All right, how do I do marriage? How do I parent my kids? How do I engage in relationships? How do I treat my enemies? How do I steward my money, right? And so on. You go to the Word. Uh, what do I believe about certain issues, especially hot-button issues that are all the time at the forefront of culture? What should I believe about sexuality and about gender and about race and about social justice issues? What do I believe? You go to the Word and you let the Word tell you what to believe, not the world. I think all the times we look to the world for advice we don't need to be looking to the world for, Right? We look to the word for the advice we need. Uh, when you're going through really rough seasons and you need hope and you need perspective and, and you need some promises to hold on to that will serve as anchors for your soul to bring you safely through to the other side, you go to the word of God. But hear me, you don't just go to hear the word. You keep going to the word that you might do the word. And this is the point that James, the brother of Jesus, makes in this little epistle he wrote in the New Testament called James, really creative title, right? Um, but in James chapter 1, he has some really important things to say about doing the word. And 
I want to show you what he says. Look, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. And and then he goes on and says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. This sounds like Psalm 1, doesn't it? He will be blessed in his doing. Here's what James is teaching. That if you are someone who hears the word, you come to church and you hear it. Uh, You read all your Christian books and you hear it. You listen to your podcast and you hear it, but you fail to do what the word says, you deceive yourself. So in other words, you believe the lie (laughs) that God will still bless you by giving you inward joy, inward contentment, uh, that your life will be unmovable and uh, immovable and unshakable, even if you live in disobedience to the word of God. It's a lie. And James makes his point with this beautiful illustration. He says, the person who hears the word but doesn't do the word, uh, he's like a man who stares at himself in a mirror and then walks away and forgets what he looks like. So imagine that. Imagine you wake up tomorrow morning and uh, you're getting ready for work or whatever it is that you're doing and you walk into the bathroom and you see yourself and immediately you go, all right, there's a lot of work that needs to happen before I leave, okay? Um, Hair's a mess. You need to shave. Ladies, your makeup is all over your face from the night before. There's food in your teeth. There's drool stuck on your cheek. Like, a lot needs to happen. So imagine you stare at yourself for a good long while, and then you walk out of the bathroom, and you forget what you look like. James says that's the person who hears the word but fails to do it. Here's the point he's making. He wants us to know that the word of God is like a mirror, not a magnifying glass. Some of y'all really need to hear that because how easy is it to do this? And we're all guilty, including me. How easy is it to hear the word and to think about what somebody else needs to do with it? Oh, they should have been in church today to hear this, right? Man, can I just tell you, God didn't give the word to us so that we could use it to examine what other people need to do. He gave us the word so that we could examine ourselves and, and figure out what we need to do. This is a mirror, not a magnifying glass. And, and anytime you hear it, it's like God himself is holding it in front of you. And he's saying to you, do you see who you are? Do you see yourself? Uh, first and foremost, you are a loved son or daughter in my family because you are in Christ Jesus, my son. I love you. I accept you. I am pleased with you. And it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with what Christ has done for you. But there are still some broken areas in you. There are still some areas that I want to redeem and restore. So take a good, long look at yourself. I want you to see you for who you are. But look, God's goal in doing so is not simply to inform us, but to transform us. This is why James goes on in verse 25, and he says this, that doing the word leads to two things. The first thing is freedom. Right? God gives us this book, get this, not to take from us, but to give to us. He gives us the word not to lead us into sorrow and misery, but joy and satisfaction. This is something I missed for a long time as a guy who grew up in church. I I thought that God gave us the Bible as rules and regulations, and they were all meant to make bad people better. And I was really frustrated and always guilty and very ashamed of myself because for the longest time I was really bad at doing all the things that the Bible wanted me to do. It wasn't until later that I started to realize and understand that the word of God, this book, 
is living, it is active, it is God-breathed, it is a gift to spiritually dead people to lead them out of death and into life. This, This book, listen, this book is a gift to lead spiritual slaves out of slavery and into liberty. And so I want you to know today, by doing what this word teaches, you're not losing anything, you're gaining everything. It leads to freedom, my friends, but not only does it lead to freedom, it leads to the blessing. That's what James says. That's what the psalmist says, that when we do what this book says, through our obedience, God begins to instill in us a joy and a satisfaction that we've never known. As we practice obedience to the word of God, all of a sudden we start to feel like, wow, I'm I'm more firmly rooted than I used to be. I just went through a storm and And years ago, that storm would have wrecked my life, would have ruined, would have just blown me away. But here I am on the other side of this thing, still standing. That's what God does in you through his word. And again, every time you receive uh, or hear the word and you do the word, you're constantly reminded of the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. That one day, as a loved son or daughter of God, you will stand through separation. You will stand through judgment. And you will know the very protection of God. And so as we close today, I just want to leave you with a simple question, and it's this. Uh, Which of these two ways are you walking in? Are you that person walking in the way of blessing, or are you that person walking in the way of judgment? Are you that person who showed up today and you delight in the Word of God, or have you shown up as that person who has despised the Word of God? If your answers to those questions are the latter, I want to invite you to do something about that right now in this moment. So can we just pray together? Just heads bowed, eyes closed, all across the room. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come and to get in their places. And as they come, I want to speak first and foremost to those of you who walked in the door today without a relationship with God. Maybe you've shown up as that person that just kind of living life your way, doing what you want indulging the desires that live in you and and you're expecting as you live that way for joy and hope and contentment to set in at some point but today you've realized that those things can only come from God nothing else in life can, can offer you what only he offers you listen if that's you I just want to say to you God loves you And he wants a relationship with you. He wants to change your life forever. So much so that he gave the life of his very own son, Jesus Christ, to buy you back to himself. And so if you need your life to change starting today, if you need the hope of eternity spent with God, then why don't you just say something to God in prayer like this? Just say, God, I need a relationship with you. And I believe that Jesus, your son, can give me that relationship. So I put my faith in in his death on the cross for me all those years ago to pay for all my sin. And I also believe that he rose from the dead to conquer sin, death, and hell for me so that I could enjoy new life now and eternal life with you later. And so God, I'm, I'm asking you, would you forgive me of all my sins? God, take hold of my life Put your spirit inside of me so that I can be the person you've created me and now saved me to be. God, I say yes to a relationship with you.
but with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, if you just prayed that with me or something like it, would you be willing to acknowledge the fact that you made that decision right now by just lifting a hand wherever you are? Just, James, that's me. Put my faith in Jesus today. If, if you'll just keep your hand up for just a moment, our prayer team is going to come and put a resource in your hand. And as soon as you receive it, you can put your hand back down. Thank you so much. Just keep it up for a moment. They're on the way. They're on the way, on the way, on the way. Awesome. Anybody else? James, that's me. Awesome. God, I just want to pray for those of us in the room, including my new brothers and sisters in Christ who just trusted in your son. God, that you would give every single one of us a deep passion and a deep love for your word. Help us to believe that all your promises are good and true, that all your commands lead to joy and freedom. God, I pray that each and every day this word would be on our hearts, on our minds, on our, on our lips, that our desire would be to live it out, regardless of who we are, who we're around, what we're doing. God, we thank you that through your son, you have invited us into your story, that you've saved us, that you've redeemed us, that one day we're going to be with you. And so, God, while we're here on the earth God, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to walk faithfully to what you've said. God, we trust you for it. We love you so much. And we pray all this in the name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen.